Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Nathan and Alexa. While some of the world may speak of Ukraine as a young country, the struggle for Ukrainian independence has been a long and complicated journey for hundreds of years. This week, we explore the history of Ukrainian statehood and discuss the idea of recognizing two days of Ukrainian independence. This and more on Zakhtonyu Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. With Ukraine about to celebrate its 30th anniversary of independence, we thought we could take a look at um, if Ukraine should actually consider changing its original independence date to be uh, a re-establishment of the Ukrainian state. So, Alexa, what do you f- what do you think about this? Considering that I think some other countries have done it as well. Yes. So, a lot. Uh, there's a few post-Soviet countries that don't celebrate the their exit from the Soviet Union as their independence date. Many view it as a restoration of their independence. And probably the clearest example would be the three Baltic states of Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. And I thought we could have a sort of like a case study and look into Lithuania. So Lithuania actually celebrates two independence days. So they've got one in February 16th, which is the day of restoration of the state of Lithuania, which commemorates them declaring their independence from the Russian Empire in 1918. And then a few weeks later, on March the 11th, they celebrate the day of restoration of the independence of Lithuania, and that's commemorating them exiting the Soviet Union in 1990. And a lot of Western countries um, obviously accept uh, Lithuania's reason of celebrating two Independence Day. And this stems from the fact of how Lithuania was forcibly absorbed into the Soviet into the Soviet Union in the 1940s. And the West even had like a specific doctrine. It was called the Stimson Doctrine. And they had the Wells Declaration, which basically said that whilst they didn't recognize the Soviet governments installed in these three countries. They obviously had to recognize the control that the Soviets had over these territories. And what this meant was, is during the whole course of the Baltic states being part of the Soviet Union, their government and exile actually had embassies across the West. So they had embassies in America, they had embassies in the UK, and they even had the gold reserves that these countries had stored overseas which were accessible to them and these ambassadors of the old of the original lithuania would then be able to go have meetings because all their credentials were still valid and passports issued by lithuania pre-1940 were recognized all the way to 1990 when lithuania established its independence so i think it's kind of a cool not gimmick of history but an interesting side note that um, in, re- like, in some sense, there were two Lithuanias existing. You had the original like independent Lithuanian state, and then you had the Soviet puppet regime that was in Lithuania. And so the USSR would always try and complain when Western leaders met with these leaders in exile, but there wasn't too much they could really do. And this sort of brings us back to the discussion, um, should Ukraine move to a similar concept because Ukraine also declared independence from the Russian Empire at this time. 
And just like all these other states, they have, Ukraine has a very long history of different state, states in various um, historical periods of Ukraine. So Nathan, do you want to go through some examples of Ukrainian statehood through history? Yeah, definitely. So um, in doing research on this topic, I've noticed that there was, um, yes, several different periods of um, Ukrainian uh, statehood that existed uh, dating back all the way to Kiev and Rus. So as as we all know, Ukraina's history can be dated back to Kiev and Rus. A good example of that is that um, like if you look at coins from uh, Kiev and Rus, um, you can see that there's actually, they feature the Trezub on them, which is, you know, a, a link towards, uh, which is a symbol that Ukraine, uh, Ukrainians have used all throughout their, um, you know, the existence of um, Ukraina or the Ukrainian people, and which we still use today. So there's a quite a strong link there, as well as other things that we've mentioned before um, uh, in terms of the lineage. Um, but going past Kiev and Rus, um, we then have the, the number of different states that kind of gets a little, maybe a little messy when it turns when you try to work out exactly um, the structure of how they uh, fit in with one another. Um, but um, after the um, uh, like uh, the Kiev and Rus uh, state, um, Nestor the Chronicler, who's a um, a historian who wrote down a lot of the early um, events of like Kiev and Rus and the, the Slavic um, area at the time, he mentioned that there was a um, a like a, a not really a breaking up but um, an incorporation of the the Western Ukrainian kingdoms into the Kiev and Rus kingdoms, and Prince Yaroslav the Wise he distributed these principalities amongst his sons, so that when there were efforts to disrupt the Kiev and kingdoms. What he did was uh, one of his sons, uh, Prince Roman, uh, emerged and was trying to unite all of these Ukrainian kingdoms under the kingdom of Halich Volynia. And then after this, there was the Mongolian invasion, which significantly weakened um, all those kingdoms in the area at the time, after which Ukraina fell under uh, various rules, eventually falling under the Lithuanian rule um, for a period of time. But in amongst that Lithuanian, um, the rule of, of Lithuania, the um, Ukrainian culture was actually widely um, accepted in Lithuania as well. And it was gladly welcomed that their institutions, their laws, their customs, and even their language. Um, and I have a quote here. Ukrainians did not enjoy these privileges for long, however. In 1386, Poland achieved a dynastic union with Lithuania, and in 1569, a political union. In this way, Poland came to dominate the Polish-Lithuanian state and gradually imposed her, her laws on the whole population. So under Lithuania, it seemed that there was a period of, we could say, um, not so much enlightenment, but it was a, a good period where the Ukrainian culture wasn't suppressed like it has been for, you know, the hundreds of years um, that we know of, but um, it was kind of um, was- embraced. But yeah, go Alexa. You could say it was almost like a reverse cultural infusion, like, um, the Lithuanians who took over the lands of Kievskurus took on the same culture of Kievskurus and imported it back into Lithuania proper. And like the fact that they accepted Kievskurus's law codes as their own law codes kind of shows you how uh, progressive and forward-thinking Kievskurus was, that even after it ceased being a functioning state, the people who took over the land used the same law codes. Yeah, yes, that's right. Um, and then 
under the Polish uh, system, the um, a lot of Ukrainians uh, lost a lot of their privileges and were forced forced into serfdom, and that eventually led to a um, escape of a large amount of Ukrainian parents who, peasants who fled um, those um, regions. So when we wonder about why you know land borders change over time and why uh, ethnic groups move around, there. Um, or we can even see it now um, when you look at Afghanistan, that people tend to flee countries once something happens and that really shifts the dynamic of, um, you know, ethnic groups in those regions and then those land borders are eventually redrawn. Now, because of all of this oppression, eventually the Ukrainians um, decided that they were going to actually you know, really start to push back. And um, I have another quote here, which I thought was really good. It says, threatened with extin- extinction by the Tatars, the Turks, and now by the Poles, the Ukrainians developed a remarkable means of defense, defense and self-preservation. In the 15th century, the Cossacks, who later revived the Ukrainian state, emerged from the hardy and fearless Ukrainian frontiersmen. So what eventually happened was they started to take on a lot of the more militaristic approach. And in the face of constant peril from the Tatars and the Turks, the Cossacks developed masterful skills in swordsmanship, in musketry, in horsemanship and boatmanship, and in the art of attack and defence. Their daring raids won them admiration throughout the world and many foreign states sought their help. So this eventually led to uh, the Cossack state and eventually um, the Hetman state of Ukraine, where they were harshly, sorry, fiercely defending their independence and oftentimes, like I mentioned, they were the envy of certain nations who just absolutely struggled to try and uh, take them over. There's an interesting story of when uh, Turkish forces were attempting to invade Europe, and they were the forces, in, this is in 1621, the Turkish forces were actually defeated by the Co- um, Cossacks under the Hetman Shadistani uh, at a place called Cotton. So... This is really when we, you know, we could see those symbols of, uh, you know, Ukrainian Cossack and their prime with the swords and the horses. And you think of uh, those famous fighters. This is really that period they're talking about when Ukraine was really trying to push for its own, uh, to have its own state. Eventually, however, under uh, Hetman Ukhtan Khmelnytsky, there was a massive push to try and suppress this uh, Hetman state, which eventually was successful on when the Hetman uh, passed away and those regions of um, Ukraine were eventually divided amongst Poland and Russia, unfortunately. Then we get to the period where there was a sense of a national revival. You know, after having a significant period of being occupied, you have people like Tarashevchenko start to rise up and really try to push for the, uh, you know, the cultural emancipation of, um, you know, Ukrainian culture. He started writing works in Ukrainian as opposed to what was the common literature language at the time, which would have been Church Slavonic. And he really pushed to develop the Ukrainian language um, and really, you know, kickstart it into the language that we know today. Now, then after that push, finally, the Russian Revolution ended up happening. Alexa, can you give a little bit more information on that? Yeah, no worries. Um, So 1917 was a very turbulent period in Europe. As we all know, it was almost the end of World War One. And uh, Ukraine, which was then part of the Russian Empire, could see that power was slipping away. And after the Tsar was removed from power, uh, on June 23rd, 1917, 
um, Ukraine declared autonomy within Russia, and this was after the formation of the Central Rada or Centralna Rada. And you, if you look through the history, there's a slow progression to full independence, and eventually, on the 22nd of January 1918, Ukraine um, declared its fourth universal declaration and declared its independence from Russia, and within a couple of days signed a separate peace treaty with the Central Powers ending World War I on the territory of Ukraine. And for those who think, how could Ukraine sign a separate peace treaty, um, it's because Ukraine was able to come to an agreement with the Germans, unlike the Bolsheviks and Russians that were running the rest of the Russian Empire, and Ukraine was able to end the war a month quicker than the Bolsheviks were able to. And then after this, you have the start of Ukraine's war for independence, and there's a quick succession of states. So the, the Ukrainian People's Republic um, was able to merge with the Western Ukrainian People's Republic, creating for the first time in modern history a unified single nation for the Ukrainian people. Afterwards, the Ukrainian People's Public Republic was overthrown and the Ukrainian state was created which was led by... Uh, I believe it's Pavlos Kuropatsky. Yes, so, Pavlos yeah. Kuropatsky. He ran Ukraine for the majority of 1918 until he was overthrown by Petlura, who re-established the Ukrainian People's Republic via a directorate, um, which led Ukraine, the Ukrainian government until 1920 when Ukraine's bid for independence was crushed at the Treaty of Riga, where Poland and the Soviet Union divided um, Ukraine, Ukrainian lands between themselves. But even this didn't stop Ukrainians. So on the eve of World War II in 1939, you had the establishment of Kapafo Ukraine in uh, Zakarpatia, in the far most western region of Ukraine, which declared its independence with the collapse of Czechoslovakia. And when the Germans invaded um, the Soviet Union, you had Stepan Bandara and Oun declare the re-establishment of Ukraine in 1941. However, this was also quickly crushed by the Nazis. And then this takes us to 1991 with the re-establishment of Ukraine's independence. Yes, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And that's when you really start to see that transition from uh, communist Ukraine to, you know, the Ukraine that's... Um, has developed now and obviously is, is still developing um, with a lot of the recent changes we've seen with um, Maidan as well. So there isn't just 30 years here. I mean, the 30 years period, you know, there's been a lot in it, you know, the Orange Revolution, you know, Maidan and all the changes that have happened since then. But there is so much more when it comes to the history of Ukraina um, that really doesn't get addressed when we say, you know, oh, we're an independent nation and we've been independent for 30 years. It does. It kind of. It doesn't do it justice. Well, it doesn't do justice to all of the struggles that have happened uh, previously, and people don't really realize it. That's why I think the model that people uh, will let other countries use is much better because it doesn't just focus their independence on or around the Soviet Union's fall. Rather, it mentions that you know we do have a national identity pre the Soviet Union. And uh, that should be recognised as well. But, you know, that's my take. What do you guys think? Do you think they should uh, recognise that as well or stay with the 30 years? Um, for me, I think they should move to what Lithuania has, where you have the two separate dates. 
um, I believe that we should actually consider reintroducing the original Declaration of Independence in 1918 and classify that as our true beginning, just how uh, Lithuania was as well. And then having 1991 recognized as the reestablishment of that nation. Though there obviously would be some pushback from people, but I think it's for the best, considering that uh, there's a, a large majority that consider uh, the Soviet Union and that whole time period to be rather oppressive and would rather not recognize it in today's, Ukra- in today's Ukraine. Yeah, but another point as well I'd also add to that is that when we talk about, like I know you said, the declaration in 1918, I, I guess you mean when, like, when you say true beginning, you mean true beginning as like a modern day Ukrainian state, not so much a true beginning of the Ukrainian people because that can be traced back, you know, almost thousands of years now. Yeah, yeah. well, considering that the last century had four attempts of Ukrainian independence, I think that starting from then is where modern day Ukraine really start to uh, shine in Europe. Yeah, and we can see, we can even see this in Ukraine's modern declaration of independence and they reference in their uh, first point because they, they give three points for the independence and they say their first point is continuing the thousand-year history of nation-creating in Ukraine. So even Ukraine's then communist government, um, when they declared independence from the Soviet Union, they use the historical context of Ukraine's thousand-year history as a basis for declaring independence. And we can sort of see this idea of the duality of celebrating Ukrainian independence slowly creep into Ukrainian society today. So, for example, in 2018, Ukraine celebrated 100 years of the Ukrainian People's Republic during its Independence Day, and they've started renaming elements of the army in honor of military brigades and companies that existed in the Ukrainian People's Republic Army. And so they're creating that modern link between these two political entities. And I think eventually it might become an official holiday or it might be an informal holiday that's just commemorated on a political or private level. But it's, I think time will tell but I think Ukraine will slowly embrace two independence days. I definitely agree with you with the, um, when it comes to the two independence days. Like you can't throw out the importance of 1991 um, to you know focus on uh, previous Ukrainian states um, because not you know that that nation that was formed in 1991 is the Ukrainian nation that exists uh, today. So that is definitely an important one to keep, and that is recognizing the country that. You know, exists today, but it's also important to not throw out the other, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of Ukrainian history as well. And those should also be recognized. So, 100%, I agree that there should be definitely two different celebrations of Ukrainian um, independence as uh, the country it is today, as well as Ukrainian uh, statehood and, you know, Ukraine and the Ukrainian nation that has existed, you know, for hundreds of years. In the news this week, a group of individuals have destroyed a Soviet-style art installation on the Alley of the Heavenly Hundred Heroes. The display was part of a series that depicts the history of Ukraine from ancient times to the present. Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said that Soviet-style objects were inappropriate for the location. 
Ukraine will begin celebrating the 30th anniversary of its independence from August the 22nd, and events will culminate with a military parade on August 24th on Maidan Nazalajnoste. 44 delegations will take part in the inaugural summit of the Crimean platform. 14 delegations will be led by heads of state and government. According to Ukraine's foreign minister, Ukraine has never hosted such an event. President Zelensky has called on the Vahovna Rada to meet in an extraordinary meeting to vote in his proposal for Ukraine's Great Coat of Arms. For the Great Coat of Arms to be adopted, it must be supported by 300 deputies or two-thirds of Ukraine's parliament. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Report content.